we'd like to thank you, our valued listeners, for your interest and support over the past 18-odd months. What was initially FX Radio has grown exponentially to include not just our podcasts in FX Medicine Podcast Central on iTunes, but we'd like to also introduce the recently launched FX Medicine website. This is our reservoir of resources, research and educational content for complementary medicine. Come and be a part of the community at fxmedicine.com.au. Hi, this is Stacey, the Baby Maker Roberts, and I would love for you to join me in February, our seminar, Going From Unexplained to Pregnant. This seminar will help you assist more of your patients by providing you with practical, clinically proven advice on all aspects of unexplained fertility issues, and I can't wait to share it with you. I look forward to seeing you in February, and to register for this event, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the education tab. See you there. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me on the line today is Justin Sinclair, who's a practicing naturopath, author, consultant, and lecturer, specializing in herbal medicine and phytochemistry. Justin spent much of his younger years traveling and learning from different cultures about their ethnopharmacological uses of various plants, which led him to formal study in the CAM field in his 20s, and after completing a Bachelor of Health Science in Naturopathy with the University of New England and diploma-level studies in herbal medicine, naturopathy and nutrition with ACNT in 2002, he went on to study the Master of Herbal Medicines with the Sydney University's Faculty of Pharmacy, graduating in 2004. Key areas of study in this program were analytical phytochemistry, pharmacognosy, toxicology, pharmaceutical technology and medicinal botany. He's published on the topics of pain management and herb-drug interactions in peer-reviewed text and has held executive director and examiner positions on the board of directors for the National Herbalist Association of Australia, that's the NHAA. Justin has had a research interest in medicinal cannabis for the last six years, in particular the endocannabinoid system, or endocannabinoid system, constituent synergy, i.e. the entourage effect, novel drug delivery systems for cannabinoids and terpenes, and the use of medicinal cannabis for pain, anxiety, and immunomodulation. And Justin today joins us for part two of our talk on the various uses of the cannabis species. Welcome, Justin. Good morning, Andrew. Thanks for having me back. (laughs) Justin, I learnt so much in our chat last time, and today I want to delve more into the phytochemistry, pharmacognosy aspects. Um, But I think first we need to sort of look at which species we're looking at and indeed which cultivars. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's actually a pretty interesting discussion. And and I guess not without uh, surprise, the discussion about uh, plants and specific species within this uh, topic of cannabis is not only interesting, but actually a a little contentious as well. So I think basically at at the moment, uh, it's still being debated fairly heavily, uh, not only in scientific, but also the legal community as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I guess to set the stage with that, uh, basically without getting too 
botanically or, or taxonomically excitable. Um, there currently exists what we would consider two different theories on the cannabis uh, genus. So this is, the in the first instance, uh, whether it's monotypic uh, or which is a single species, mm. or whether it's what we call polytypic or multiple species. So we've got this model of either the polytypic model uh, or the monotypic model. So in the first instance, which was the monotypic model, mm. uh, we've got scientists, I think uh, I think it was Miller and Small, uh, back. they published back in the 1970s, that based on its, uh, based on cannabis's phytochemistry, on its anatomy, on its morphology, its genetic sequencing. Because remember, uh, genetics and things like that was really only starting to come out then. Um, but they actually believed strongly that it was just a, a single, uh, highly polymorphic species. So there's that uh, concept. Uh, remember, polymorphic just means that uh, one species could exhibit a huge amount of biodiversity, uh, genetic variation, adaptation, yeah. all those types of things. Yeah. So, you know, not surprisingly, polymorphism is very common in nature, not just in plants, uh, and something actually that we'll talk about a little bit to do with humans uh, later on when we look at the uh, endocannabinoid system. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the uh, all of that sequencing, they thought that it was just one species. So then you've got, conversely, of course, uh, in the later model, the polytypic model, We've got some academics, uh, particularly in the last 10, 15 years, that are of the opinion that there's more than one species in the genus. Um, and this all seems to have stemmed, uh, if you'll pardon the botanical pun there, from work by French naturalist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. Um, and many of you uh, in the herbal community would have heard of uh, Lamarck, probably not as much as Carl Linnaeus. And this is the interesting uh. Uh, I guess the interesting relationship here is that in uh, I think it was 1785, uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck described what he thought was a different species um, from the original species descriptor of cannabis sativa, which was done by the legendary Carl Linnaeus in 1737. So he named the species cannabis indica, uh, so which is, is quite different, and we'll, we'll look at its morphology in a minute. But So he was basing his, his work on thinking he found a new species, uh, and so this uh, is basically where we've got this new polytypic model. Mm -hmm. So here we are now in 2015, uh, and we currently believe that there exists about three different species within the genus of cannabis, mm -hmm. uh, but it just depends on which camp you follow. So we've got the cannabis sativa, uh, cannabis indica, and uh, cannabis ruderalis, uh, and they're all uh, exhibiting basically different morphological and, and chemical compositions. So the species that I'm more aware of from an illicit drug use point of view, Justin, is the cannabis sativa. But you're talking about cannabis indica, and I'm not even aware of that last species. Could you say that one again? Yeah, cannabis ruderalis. Well, ruderalis. I, can, I can take you through that if you wish. Yeah, please. Yeah, so... Well, cannabis sativa, um, which is just from that uh, Latin sativum, meaning you know of the fields, uh, it's probably one of the ones that's best known simply because it's probably, uh, well, at least from archaeological evidence, the one that we've used the most. Uh, so as a species in, in growing in large plots and things like that. So cannabis sativa, quite different to the others. It's it's very tall, uh, very branched. Uh, plant, so it can it can get quite large, and because of that is largely why they've used it for fiber and and seed and oil production. But it also tends to have a higher concentration phytochemically of CBD. 
Mm-hmm. So whilst it does contain other cannabinoids and a lot of different uh, uh, other active constituents, uh, this tends to be one that's a little bit more CBD dominant. Whereas cannabis indica uh, is more short, squat, its leaves uh, are quite different. They're not long and branched like a sativa. They're more short and squat and fat. Uh, and uh, this plant typically um, has very, very dense and firm inflorescences. So the the botanical term inflorescence is just many little flowers. And I mean, I guess colloquially, uh, this is the medicinal part that's used. These are the buds, I guess, if you will. Uh, So these really compact, dense, firm inflorescences, and they have a much higher THC concentration. So this makes them a little bit more sedating and hypnotic. Whereas the last one, this uh, Cannabis ruderalis, so this is quite a different uh, species altogether than the other two. Uh, and it's usually got a fairly weak pattern of uh, cannabinoid distribution. So it doesn't make it very useful medicinally. But on an interesting uh, uh, note, so it is what we call an auto-flowering species. So yeah. this basically means that it's not like the others. Uh, in, in, I guess to cut a long story short, cannabis is a pretty unusual plant because it undergoes heavy vegetative cycles or veg cycles. Uh, And what I mean by this is that it puts out large amounts of leaves to increase its photosynthetic capacity and the production of energy uh, during the longer daylight hours of spring and summer. So it really, it's kind of like maximizing on that. It puts all of the the solar panels out that it can to maximize as much energy uh, so it can, you know, concentrate carbohydrates and, and make all the chemistry that it needs. And as those daylight hours then drop, as it goes into autumn, uh, this actually triggers the plant to flower. So this is, of course, um, you know, uh, quite quite interesting because this allows for uh, cannabis ruderalis uh, to uh, auto flower, hmm. whereas the others don't. So where we've got very very concentrated and and strongly regulated amounts of daylight uh, that trigger the cannabis sativa and cannabis indica, many of the cannabis ruderalis. Uh, species basically just automatically go to flower after 90 days. So this is quite interesting for particularly those that, uh, and I'm talking more uh, in other countries, uh, you know, that are home growers. Mm. Uh, so, and they, and they maybe live in areas where daylight hours are not as variable. Oh, I so see. it's really, yeah, it's that dual daylight hour. So this is um, kind of where the, the understanding of this daylight distribution and how the plants use it uh, is, is quite interesting because, you know, with almost every other plant species that we know, they put their flowers out in spring and they maximize, uh, you know, for seed distribution in, in the late summer. Hmm. Whereas cannabis is one of those very uh, rare plants, at least the sativa and the indica species, uh, where they actually uh, do all of their hard work in spring and summer. And then basically just as it's going into uh, the colder months, they will they will go to flower. So this what is basically lent itself to indoor growing. Uh, because of the manipulation of the dual daylight hours uh, that we've seen. So typically that uh, indoor scenario where, quite frankly, a lot of medicinal cannabis is being grown indoors because it can be controlled and regulated very tightly. You've got about 16 to 18 hours of continuous light uh, is basically going to be used uh, for that vegetative stage of growth in that uh, first instance. So they use things like uh, high-pressure sodium lights and metal halide lights. Um, although, interestingly, on my last trip to the United States, they use uh, and have started to use light-emitting diodes, uh, which are becoming very popular because they produce far less heat uh, and, and use a lot less power. But 
the, the light exposure um, then drops down to 10 hours for the flowering stage. So mm. you can basically keep a plant uh, literally uh, for months and months and months and months if you needed to mm. uh, in a completely vegetated state and they'll just stay there. And it's only when you drop the hour uh, hours down to about 10 hours that it will automatically trigger those plants to then go into their flowering state. So sorry. So, so sorry, two questions I've got for you there is, does that mean that the third species has mm-hmm. its own internal regulatory system and the other one was um, what about light spectrum or spectra of various light sources? Yeah, yeah that's a really good question, that, that, that last one. Not that the first one isn't, but of course the Ruderalis <laughs> is a really interesting one because what they've then done is trying to crossbreed it with sativa and indica strains. Uh, and so that allows for an ease of growing for some people. So for people right. that don't have the experience and, of course, the equipment, which can be very expensive, uh, it does allow for people that are, you know, maybe trying to, over in the United States, etc., grow their own, and it just goes into auto-flowering, uh, particularly if they're in other uh, latitudes uh, where they're not getting that nice full 16- to 18-hour spectrum. So it's, a, it's an interesting uh, area of plant genetics where they are breeding the ruderalis into others to make it easier to just... Uh, to I guess ease of use for growing. Mm. But that, that other question is a really good one um, when we start looking at the light spectra. So, of course, the uh, the ones that are probably have been used most in the past was the high-pressure sodium and the metal halide lights, and they use the different lights at different uh, growing times and, and, and for flowering times. But the they ne- they're never going to fully mimic uh, the you know, the photons that are emitted from the sun. And so we do tend to see some slight uh, active constituent changes in distribution uh, when it comes to those that are growing outdoors as opposed to those that are growing indoors. Mm. And so when when you start venturing up into areas like Humboldt County, Mendocino County, where they do have some rather large outdoor grow operations, I mean, I've I've, uh, wandered through fields there that uh, the... The cannabis plants get to anywhere between 11 to sometimes 12 to 13 feet tall, and uh, it's because they're just getting bombarded with uh, what that what they're designed to to, to utilize. Yeah. The best that the best that things like high pressure sodium metal halide and LEDs do is is mimic nature, uh, but it's it, it is not going to have the 100% same effect no. uh, that uh, those the photons from the sun will because they just those. Some of those plants just—they're basically like trees. They're absolutely enormous, and, wow. and the um, the yield of them uh, is amazing, uh, simply because the uh, amount that they can get off them. But that's a big difference too when it comes to indoor growing. So, in indoor growing, you can basically turn around uh, new crops, or you know, if you basically look at it as a crop and a harvest cycle, uh, about every three months. Whereas, obviously, when we start to look at uh, outdoor cycles, uh, it literally is just going with the, you have to plant and harvest with the season. So Mm. the the outdoor crop will get larger yields. In some instances, you can get anywhere between three to four pounds per plant uh, of of cannabis uh, yielded inflorescence. But uh, the difference is, is that that's then up against indoor growth, which you're having uh, if you're you're getting a yield every three to four months, you know, three to four growth cycles in a year. So it's, it's a lot more tightly regulated as well because you can uh, regulate the soil 
the pH and all those types of things as well. So I, I think this is a perfect segue onto the the next question that I have for you, and that's the use, the, you know, the legal versus the illicit or illegal use of the plant. And mm-hmm. I've got to say right now that neither FX Medicine nor Justin Sinclair endorse illicit use of drugs. Um, and we're looking at responsible regulated use for medicinal purposes. But let's go into this, Justin, because it's highly controversial Talk to me about the illicit versus legal use, and and if you wouldn't mind putting that in a historic context as well, because you know in our twenty first century living we abuse so many things, including plants. I mean, you're talking about indoor growing of a plant. Imagine just keeping an animal indoor all the time. You know, it, it, we would we would think it's inhumane. Um, yeah. So you know, this is a plant. Um, so it's yeah. kind of like caring for an orchid. Um, uh, you know and I just think there's nothing like it being outside in nature but anyway can can you put that into into this context please yeah sure so when we're looking at the at at, uh, different cultivars and whether one should be legal or or, or one legal um, it's it's a really good question and and to be quite honest I think uh, in short uh, no I think that uh, we, we definitely need to have Different cultivars, and I think that uh, it's going to. It all goes back to that uh, that original discussion that we were having about uh, different uh, cultivars having different chemistry, and different mm. chemistry being utilised for different applications. Um, so, you know, each and every strain exhibits different and and quite unique phytochemistry, uh, and that then lends itself to this wide array of different therapeutic applications. So, if we look just for a minute at uh, CBD. Uh, CBD is very popular at the moment because of its use with uh, epilepsy. It's been getting a lot of uh, airtime and media time. So we'll, we'll start with that one first. So there's one strain um, that you may or may not have heard of uh, called Charlotte's Web. So right. this is a particular strain designed and produced by the uh, legendary Stanley Brothers over in Colorado. So these guys have got a very, very long history of uh, wealth of knowledge and selective plant breeding and plant genetics. And they basically crafted a strain that is very, very high uh, in CBD and has very low tetrahydrocannabinol, actually less than about 0.3% of THC. So it does not cause that classic psychoactivity of being stoned, which is associated with that Delta 9 THC. So the the, the name Charlotte's Web, they actually uh, named it after a little nine-year-old Dravet syndrome sufferer named Charlotte Figgy. Uh, And so they designed this just for uh, epilepsy, and many hundreds of families around the world, obviously, have, have been using this strain now with great therapeutic relief you know, of seizures, particularly in children and uh, intractable seizures. Yeah. Now, the problem with that, of course, uh, is that it's only anecdotal evidence. And as you know, you know there's uh, quite a low... Uh, you know, anecdotal evidence is pretty low on the list of scientific priorities uh, when it comes to strength of evidence and claims. Hence why I think this is part of the reason why science and medicine are are dragging their feet a little bit and and requiring a little bit more uh, solid evidence. But that being said, if one focuses on just, you know, clinical significance and not statistical significance, uh, for example, it's a bit of a no-brainer, you know, when you start seeing these... uh, children suffering intractable seizures and uh, and uh, now, you know, basically dropping down to maybe uh, two or three a month. So 
uh, it does raise, I think, a, a little bit of a discussion about scientists uh, that can exert such strong legislative opinion when it comes to when it comes to you know governments and legislation. Mm-hmm. So even though they've got a lot of theoretical knowledge of of the plant and its activities, um, they actually don't have much practical experience in the use uh, for, for patients, uh, particularly in this country. So I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, I will uh, segue back there, but. It's just because you know we, we're talking about uh, setting up these regulatory guidelines in Australia at the moment for uh, for cannabis and looking at doctors as being the uh, the, the the people that will basically uh, run that show. And there's there's no one actually really here in Australia with that type of. Uh, uh, practical use of the plant because, of course, it's been illegal. Yeah. But anyway, it's it's uh, just a bit of a digression. But if we get back on topic, then looks uh, we'll look at another strain or another cultivar. And this one's quite different. Uh, this is, let's, let's look at White Widow. Um, so this is a very strong uh, 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 plant with THC. And I, I'm probably hearing you thinking right about now, what is with all the crazy names uh, for these different strains? You know, why do they just get named Charlotte's Web or or Purple Haze or, or uh, White Widow. Yeah. And to be honest, I, I don't really know exactly how it all started, but I think suffice to say it will it will define in some way what the parentage of the specific strain is or define something about its morphological characteristics. So for White Widow, for example, um, it's so, so named typically because it's got such a thick blanket of white glandular trichomes, and it's in those trichomes that are, the THC is very rich, and it's this particular plant was, uh, I think, derived from a Brazilian sativa landrace strain and a, and a South Indian indica strain uh, that's really, really heavy with resin. Um, that term landrace, just so you know, uh, is just uh, means a strain or species that's had very minimal assistance uh, or you know, kind of manipulation in growing from man. It's kind of just right. naturally evolved. Right. So you do you do have some of these that uh, are still quite popular. Uh, so uh, another example there is a. A different strain called Durban Poison, uh, and that comes from that uh, Durban. I think it's a South African port city over yeah. in uh, South Africa, yep, yep. and it's actually a pure 100% sativa strain. So um, when we start looking or just uh, going back to White Widow, it's it's produced in the Netherlands genetically and uh, what we call a hybrid. So where we were talking uh, originally about the uh, indica and sativa, what mm. they can now do is is crossbreed. And this is about a 60% indica, 40% sativa uh, dominant strain, making it really good for those that want uh, more pain relief, stress relief, and anore- you know uh, help with anorexia. Uh, not anorexia, the, the uh, uh, anorexia nervosa, so to speak, but just anorexia in the form of uh, I want to eat more, etc. Particularly as a uh, consequence of chemotherapy, for example. Yeah. And if you need some stronger sedation and, and hypnotic action, it's those indica-specific uh, strains that are going to just uh, help so much there. Uh, whereas the sativa uh, typically has a li- little bit more of a euphoric, uplifting, uh, <clears throat> creative side to things. So people, what we tend to see over in, uh, particularly in the United States, is that some people will use sativa strains during the day. So they will um, higher in CBD, a little bit lower in THC. So it has that euphoria. They're still getting their med- meditation because the CBD has got the, the strong anti-inflammatory um, actions and, and immunomodulatory actions there. So that gets them covered through the day. They can still be functional. They can hold down a job uh, with no or little psychoactivity. And then they can get home and, and get ready for bed and they can uh, take something that's a little bit more indica 
specific and that will uh, help with those sedation, hypnotic and analgesic actions. So it's a, it's a really you know interesting thing where we kind of have that discussion of that we've got uh, you know, many different strains for many different things. And it's just like, you know, the, the old analogy of uh, having many different types of dog, you know, and, and, and some are more useful for different tasks than others, and um, particularly when it comes to the different strains of, of medicinal cannabis. So what about, you know, the sort of legal or, or illicit use versus legal use? Obviously, this has got to be regulated. And, yeah. you know, by what you're talking about very tightly. Um, yeah. My my question is has to be, should we be therefore looking at the extracted phytochemicals pure, i.e. Mm-hmm. delta nine THC and CBD and others yeah. that that arise, or should we be looking at whole plant and variations of ratios of these chemicals? It's a really well thought out question, and I must—I'll be very specific uh, out from the out from the bat and say that I've got a pretty biased opinion when it comes to this. So mm. I'm not—I uh, I must admit—I'm not a huge fan of isolated plant extracts uh, and single active ingredients. But um, I, I can talk through why. I mean, look, there's Sativex uh, and you know, or, or Marinol, uh, all these different. Uh, drugs uh, or, or pharmaceutical basically drugs where they're just extracting various plant cannabinoids and using them in clinical trials. Now, those clinical trials are still showing a lot of benefit. Um, there's, I'm not uh, speaking ill about that because they do they do work. Even uh, Epidiolex is one that they're uh, using for seizure disorders, which I think is just uh, CBD specific. And the, the interesting thing about them is that, yes, they they absolutely do work. And the issue for me, I think, is that they're probably not going to work as well as they could, and there's going to be an increased risk of side effects. And yeah. so what we have seen in, in, in studies in the United States is that where you put patients that have uh, access to those types of drugs, uh, they use them, they may or may not uh, like them, and basically, uh, generally, they will always go back where possible to using some type of full plant extract or just vaping or smoking, etc. The plant, and the main reason for that is because of things like side effects. So, the the the, the I guess for me, being you know uh, with my naturopathic background and things like that, it's nature typically produces everything that's needed in in one beautiful little package. And I think it certainly has done that with a lot of these different species of and, and strains of the uh, cannabis family. Hmm. And this, you know, uh, which we can talk about with the entourage effect, but they have done uh, one interesting study. I think it was over in the UK, where they had a they just gave pure pure THC, basically, or delta nine THC, that that major psychotropic, uh, to uh, subjects, and basically they started to, you know, they felt very um, lethargic, and uh, the other terms that they were using was, you know, they felt really. Uh, dysphoric uh, is actually they didn't feel very happy they felt you know like they were kind of at a, a, at a funeral or something you know and then suddenly then they they introduced a little bit of CBD into that uh, profile and within 15 minutes they're giggling like schoolgirls right. and so this kind of uh, the the need for uh, what they call that herbal synergy or that that entourage effect I think is going to be uh, much more important than scientists are probably realizing at this point so uh, I, I must admit, you know, I understand why, uh, particularly governments uh, and uh, regulators, 
and researchers and doctors all want to use something like uh, you know, a single active ingredient because that's the way they've been brought up. That's what they know. That's, uh, it's easy to control uh, when it comes to studies. Uh, and I completely understand that and respect that. But what I'm trying to just get across, I guess, is that for me, I don't care so much about statistics. I'm, I'm not a really big, you know, statistically significant guy when it comes to this. I think it's much more about clinically significant statistics and, and uh, whether the patient is feeling better or not. Because, um, you know, quite frankly, for me, that's all that, that's all that matters. Mm. Uh, and whether or not the uh, they got to point zero, you know, uh, point under point zero five or not, uh, I, I really don't care. I just want to see someone that's able to keep food down or someone that's, you know, uh, not having seizures anymore. And so this is where I think uh, legislation uh, needs to concentrate strongly is just because what's, you know, what, what they're used to doing uh, is uh, what they're used to doing. It doesn't mean it's right. And, and it doesn't mean, I think, that they're going to be capitalizing uh, on the great phytochemical benefit that this plant has. So when it comes to legislation, I am really hoping and certainly uh, campaigning as many people as I can uh, to not just be studying these uh, single plant uh, extracts. Uh, I, I am much more pushing for full-spectrum ex- extracts because I, uh, just from uh, the interaction with patients and the interaction with cannabis physicians uh, that I've uh, had the privilege and honor of having over in the United States, they've they've done all that research for us. And basically, uh, I, you know, it's... Uh, it's a pretty simple one. There's a, there's a couple of points I just wanted to make, and, and I think the first one is you mentioned that um, uh, you know these anecdotal reports are very low on the on the spectrum, if you like, of of scientific mm-hmm. robustness. Um, yes. But but at the at the very least, this shows a proof of concept for more robust scientific investigation. So that's exactly. that's one point that that we have at least now a, a plethora of case histories. Um, mm-hmm whereby they've got something to jump from. So that's that's number one. The second one, though, is I think this is a perfect segue to talk about the the phytochemistry and the, the pharmacognosy of this plant because it's a warning to those people that are looking for any herb at standardising to one supposed active ingredient. This is a perfect example where there's at least two and probably more. Um, so let's go into the phytochemistry because there's also, apart from the... THC, the tetrahydrocannabinol, and the CBD, the cannabinodiol, there's also the terpenes, and they're just three. (laughs) So I'm going to leave you because this is your true expertise. Can you go through this complex uh, phytochemistry for our listeners? Yeah, certainly. So this, um, I think at the Starting out from the get-go, the thing that we need to understand is that, yeah, this plant is incredibly complex. We're not talking about here like, you know, we talk about uh, plants like uh, Echinacea and things like that, and we understand that they're they're amazing plants. They contain 50, you know, know, to 150 different active constituents. But the simple fact is is that this particular plant... um, depending on you know what source you read and, and what from what journals, it's basically accepted that cannabis has over 400 different phytochemicals within it. So, I mean, wow. just you know, kind of let that number sink in and percolate for a minute, you know, around your neurons. It's a huge potential um, for therapy. Um, there's actually more recent studies that are suggesting that, uh, or one author, I, I remember reading a paper that they believe that over 700 
uh, different chemicals exist based on different strains. So it's, it's, it literally can go to the specific strain or cultivar that you select um, can have higher or lower variability of phytochemistry. So this is, you know, it doesn't matter whoever is correct. What we know for sure is that at least uh, at the moment, about 70 of these uh, between 400 to, you know, uh, 600 different chemicals are what we call phytocannabinoids. Um, and they basically form the basis uh, for most of the therapeutic actions at the moment uh, that people are familiar with. So I'm going to get uh, a little bit crazy here with some uh, with some phytochemistry, so don't uh, don't freak out too much. But <laughs> when we talk about phytocannabinoids and, and what they are, they basically, in a nutshell, kind of start out their life as a love child uh, between uh, geranol pyrophosphate and a, a libotelic acid. Uh, and this forms uh, cannabigerolic acid, which is known as CBGA. So this is um, in the plants themselves. And then this basically gets broken down into a, one of four different major products. So from these, uh, basically, cannabinoids are, for lack of a better term, they're kind of uh, terpenophenolic to, to compounds uh, derived basically exclusively uh, from the glandular trichomes of the plant. So remember trichomes from that trichos meaning hair. So those those little, uh, they look like little tiny hairs or glistening crystal oh. hairs that, that are all over the uh, inflorescence of the plant. And so those glandular trichomes are packed full of these um, cannabinoids. Right. The interesting thing about the cannabinoids themselves is that they exhibit a really strong lipophilic nature. So that makes it easy for them to permeate across uh, membranes of pretty much most cells uh, and also exhibit their ability to cross the blood-brain barrier very quickly, which makes it really useful. Um, you know, uh, the, the central nervous system is a really useful target for therapy. So right. many of these cannabinoids exist in the plant largely uh, as acids, which uh, many people probably uh, didn't know about. So these cannabinoids existing in this uh, acidic form, uh, they undergo a process called decarboxylation. We kind of touched on that uh, last time we talked. So yeah. whenever they're exposed to uh, heat or to drying. So for example, uh, tetrahydrocannabinolic acid, which is just shortened to THCA, uh, is the precursor compound to delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the psychotropic component of cannabis. Mm -hmm. So if you were just kind of tiptoeing through the tulips and wandering through a beautiful cannabis plantation and pulled a nice big inflorescence of a plant off and, and just ate it right there, you would certainly get some therapeutic benefit uh, from the acidic form uh, of the THCA. But uh, you wouldn't get high, so to speak, because no decarboxylation uh, has taken place. So basically... Uh, what that means is that in its acid form, the uh, THCA, it cannot bind with specific cannabinoid receptors in the body. So the key doesn't quite fit the lock, uh, if, if you get my meaning. Yeah. So yeah. we need to dry that herb out. We need to apply some heat to it, generally between about 120 to 150 degrees Celsius for anywhere between 20 to 40 minutes, depending on what uh, temperature you are applying it at. Um, uh, if you're you know, cooking with it or simply just combust it uh, by smoking or vaping it. And the carboxyl group uh, that's attached to that THCA starts to basically vibrate at a really, really high frequency and it just breaks off and that releases effectively carbon dioxide. So those carboxyl groups chemically, uh, you guys would all remember, are just those uh, COOH groups. Uh, and once they break off, now the, key's, now the key fits uh, and it can fit and lock into 
uh, our own endogenous cannabinoid receptors. So it's not just, you know, uh, your uh, THCA and THC, that's an example there, CBD, uh, which again, are a very interesting therapeutic cannabinoid and non-psychotropic, which I think is uh, making it so attractive these days, that also exists in an acidic form. So that's a CBDA or what they call a cannabidiolic uh, acid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, I think, uh, C22H3O4 uh, structure. So really high I believe carbon. You. And, and, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah that's, a, that's a really high uh, carbon uh, structure. So that uh, acid form also needs to undergo decarboxylation. So it's really, really important to understand how to use the plant properly to get the different uh, things that you want. So you've got, obviously, there are other phytocannabinoids. It's not all about your uh, classic uh, uh, THC and, and CBD. Mm. You've got things like cannabigoravarin, uh, uh, which is your CBGV, uh, cannabigorol, CBG. You've got cannabichromine, which is known as CBC, uh, wow. cannabivarin. Uh, you know, the list just goes on and on. And And then we get down to uh, you know the terpenes, and this is this is really exciting. I think because a lot of people um, that may have or may not have, you know, um, smelt marijuana at any time. It's generally all the different smells that are characteristic of all the different strains is largely being laid down by their terpene profile. So um, when we look at uh, these terpenes, they're expressed and synthesized also in the in the glandular trichomes of the plant. And roughly, they've identified currently about 200 different compounds um, that, that have been identified just in this class alone. So, you know, we look at the at the cannabinoids as being very interesting uh, and of them being about 60 to 70 at this point, maybe more as, as we uh, study the, the plant more. But there's already uh, roughly about 200 just in this, uh, in the terpene family. So these include your monoterpenes, your sesquiterpenes, and your diterpene compounds. Mm. So all of those different flavors and tastes of cannabis um, are basically attributed to these. And, and uh, they also, though, confer very important therapeutic qualities. So we've got things like your uh, classic monoterpenes. Um, so examples of this are like your alpha-pinene, limonene, uh, beta-mercine, linalool, um, just for, for, for those of you that uh, might have been a while since you took uh, pharmacognosy, just remember that your monoterpenes are basically two isoprene units um, that are, are based on 10 carbons. Um, so uh, they're, they're pretty common uh, terpene found in cannabis oil. So mono, mono basically is just 10. And then you've got your sesquiterpenes, which have 15 carbons, uh, which are three isoprene units. Um, they're, oh, what's a good example of that one? Um, Humulene or beta caryophyllin, uh, they're good examples of the sesquiterpenes. And then you've got um, finishing up with the diterpenes, of course, which are about that uh, 20 carbon uh, group structures. But I mean, you know, we've, we've only talked about cannabinoids, we've Gosh. talked about um, the uh, terpenes, but there's, there's tons of others. I mean, we've yeah. got uh, the flavonoids. So the flavonoids, of course, which many herbalists and naturopaths are very familiar with and how important they are. There's about 29 different ones that have been uh, identified in class so far in, in various strains. And we break them down into either, I think it's uh, flavone or flavanol classes. So things like phytexin, camphorol, quercetin, uh, luteolin, apigenin, all of these uh, classes kind of shining through there. And then you've got, you know, all of the others that I guess are not not as interesting phytochemically, but they certainly might be as we as we study them more. So we've got carbohydrates, there's lots of fatty acids, of course, 
are phenols, phenolic glycosides, there's alcohols, aldehydes, ketones, esters, vitamins, coumarins, phytosterols. I mean, this plant, literally, the, the, the variance in chemical constituents um, is just incredible. And then the, the thing that really blows my mind is that all of those constituents, from phytocannabinoids all the way through uh, to the lowly, lowly uh, flavonoids, in, in, you know, uh, they all are subjected to huge uh, variability when it comes to their growing conditions. So things like soil type, elevation, humidity, temperature, water quality, uh, whether the water's soft or hard, uh, the, wow. the volume of water that they're getting, all of this will yeah. impact on the phytochemical spread of the different strains of cannabis. You know what, though? Like, I can see medical regulators just shuddering <laughs> at what you've said, <laughs> shrinking into a corner and gibbering. But, but you know, to put that into a context, I mean, we come across this every day. We eat lettuce. We, we have onions. And these mm -hmm. plants also are subject to variance in growing conditions from our farms, you know, which are taking a battering at the moment with the drought, mm -hmm. and, and yet we'll go into floods and, and things like yep. that. So there's always these variances in soils and for every plant, indeed, every living thing on this, on this earth. Indeed, so, and that's so true. You know, like I get that this could become just burdensome when you're looking at over 400 chemicals that have potential um, medicinally. Um, mm -hmm. What's interesting what about what you said about the terpenes is, um, you know, the different smells that we get and how does that interact with our immune system? Are the terpenes the immune sort of, dare I compartmentalise these, but are, are the terpenes the sort of more immune active ingredients? Not that we know of yet. I mean, the, the research, of course, when it comes to the terpenes is, I guess, early days, basically, because so many people have just been concentrating on the benefits of the cannabinoids. And mm. so we, we really are trying to... Uh, learn more about the terpenes and, and, and the role that they play. They're certainly medicinal. There's absolutely no doubt about that. They're, they're you know, everything from anti-inflammatory all the way through to exerting actually very strong antimicrobial actions and things like that. So they, they certainly have a very important part to play. I guess mostly uh, that what do we know of currently when it comes to um, immune modulation and things like that, it does tend to, tend to be a little bit more kind of a CBD at the moment, which is kind of uh, gaining that, that flavor of, of being quite a good immune modulator or, or, or useful for that. But it's, it's just the, the fact is, is that uh, not a lot of research is, is being done uh, in the terpenes at the moment for that. And, and I think it needs to be done. And, and the terpene class, uh, when it comes to cannabis, I think is what we're going to see in the next probably five to 10 years, and we are already starting to see it, is that they are far more important than we probably realize. And, uh, you know, from a, from, you know, olfactory, there's, there's been so many numerous studies now that are showing that the olfactory sensors mm. uh, do have a ability to regulate, uh, particularly the nervous system, uh, down-regulate it in, in, you know, with anxiety and things like that. They're, they're burning different essential oils in dementia units and it's reducing agitation. So the, 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 the terpenes as a class, I think, are going to, they're kind of like this unfounded uh, medicinal class that yeah. uh, has kind of been left by the wayside because yeah. uh, every, everyone's worried about the cannabinoids and learning more about them. But I think what we'll see then is that, because uh, we already uh, have seen it in herbal medicine about how important the terpenes are in, in various different plants, particularly for the antimicrobial plants, uh, you know, but uh, I, I think it's it's going to be a, a booming uh, 
uh, research interest in, in, in uh, years to come. Absolutely. Um, one other point that you made, you know, about the flavonoids, I just think it's interesting. And again, I don't want to compartmentalise or, or oversimplify um, flavonoids. But, you know, you mentioned flavonoids as this, as this um, you know, constituent, um, as these constituents, forgive me. Um, but interestingly, even herbs like St. John's wort, which are used for depression, and we used to think, oh, yeah, it's the, um, the hyperforins and the, um, the other chemicals. Now they're sort of wondering if there's a, an important aspect of the flavonoids having an antidepressant effect. So it's just really interesting how herbal medicine's oh, it's a, evolving. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent subject. And, I mean, the thing that I think that we need to consider, um, which a lot of people kind of, I think, forget, is that plants don't produce these chemicals for us that we know of. They're producing them for themselves yeah. for some type of reason. Yeah. And largely the flavonoids as a group are, are protective against uh, uh, any, you know, their antioxidants yeah. and they're protecting themselves from UVA and UVB rays. And and uh, I, I, I would hazard a guess that these flavonoids are probably potentially synergizing with other constituents, making them more available. Uh, we just don't know. But I, I think that, uh, yeah, the flavonoids are, you know, that we know as a class that they're wonderful for, you know, reducing inflammation and, and uh, they have, uh, you know, reducing LDL, all, all sorts of, you know, uh, of different very, very important therapeutic applications. But where I get really interested is is how they inter uh, interrelate and communicate yeah. and uh, work with each other uh, with different chemical classes because yeah. I think it's and and when you start talking about things like that most uh, most yeah, regulators or people that are going to try and control this their head their heads just exploded all over the wall because they're like oh my god we we can't we can't um, tighten this we can't uh, you know uh, grow it to to very very strict uh, control and the answer to that is that you can um, but my question is do you want to yeah. Uh, because I think, you know, there are going to be all these different strains that we can use, but we don't want to stop uh, breeders and genetic programs, uh, you know, these, uh, particularly the breeders in Humboldt County, Mendocino County, that what they call the Emerald Triangle over in the United States. They are the people and, and the, you know, the plant breeders over in, in uh, Netherlands and places like that in Amsterdam, that they're the people that are basically allowed for medicinal cannabis to shine as it is now. And, and I don't think that we need to be restricting growing uh, because I think the, you know, the next cures for different conditions could just be around the corner, depending on the, on what strains they crossbreed. It's, mm. it's a really interesting, uh, interesting field. Talking about regulation though, um, <laughs> from your conversation a little bit earlier, should regulators also be looking at um, regulating extraction methods? Because you were talking about different heat, um, heating and drying aspects. Yeah, look, that's a that's a, a very important point, and I think that uh, you know we can we can regulate uh, for quality control, and I think that that's probably one of the most important things we need to look at quality control and, and quality assurance mechanisms, so that patients can get the the same medicinal therapeutic benefit every single time that they're buying a certain strain uh, for their different conditions. But then we've got to actually look at the different dosage forms. And whilst in part one, you know, we talked about vaping and edibles and we talked about uh, all the different ways you can take it, you can actually uh, extract uh, and use different extracts uh, and that can have profound effects. Uh, and this is where we start going into... Well, I guess the discussion about cannabis oil um, is probably a good time to have that now because this is something that I'm actually seeing a lot of people get very confused about. So, for example, um, 
remember when I said that cannabinoids are very, very lipophilic? Mm-hmm. So they, they, they uh, dissolve very, very well in oil. And so this is one way that a lot of people use it. So they make edibles, you know, in butters and things like that. And it's a great way for these cannabinoids to transfer over uh, and then be uh, biotransformed and metabolized by the liver after about 45 minutes to an hour. But, uh, you know, so it's a slower on, uh, onset, but generally a little bit longer. And depending on, on the makeup of the plant might actually be a little bit stronger, but certainly not as quick as if you're, you know, smoking it or vaping it. So what happens is that you can, you know, you can literally uh, use things like coconut oil and whatnot and just dissolve uh, decarboxylated uh, cannabis into the oil and then t- try and work out some type of individual titration uh, for the dose for the patient. And I think this uh, this concept of titration is probably one of the areas that is confounding most people uh, because what, what people aren't realizing is, and particularly in the doctor model, of course, in the medical model, is that they're so used to prescribing a drug at a certain set dose and it's going to apply to everyone. Uh, and and we, I feel that we can't apply this to cannabis. What we need to do is kind of look at setting up baseline um, dosages and then you titrate up until that patient is symptom-free uh, or pain-free or whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. So this uh, uh, we always need to go back to, and this is where herbal medicine is so well equipped, yeah. is that we can just take that back to dry herb equivalents. We can just sit there and, and basically quantify by input how much raw, you know, how much dry plant inflorescence you put in, mm. and then quantitate that to a dry herb equivalent and use that as the model for titration to dose up or down uh, for patients. So, you know, as Confucius say, don't use cannon to kill mosquitoes. So you start really low <laughs> and you titrate up until that patient is is getting the medication that they need. And so this is is probably what's confounding regulators a little bit because they're just used to, uh, you know, something like Nexium. It's 20 milligrams or it's 40 milligrams. And that's just not going to apply for everyone because all of their needs are different. And so oil is a great way to actually just, uh, you know, from a uh, drug extract ratio uh, mm-hmm. quantitation mm-hmm. Uh, to measure out, well, you know, 10 drops of an oil is roughly equating to maybe 25 milligrams of dry herb equivalent. And then I can just use that as the dosage guideline to titrate up until that patient gets coverage. So a lot of people are using CBD uh, or CBD-rich strains in oils, uh, and then they're actually incorrectly calling it, I guess, cannabis oil. And, and cannabis oil um, was made famous by Rick Simpson. Uh, and this was this is quite a different creature. So this type of thing, which they're uh, using, and you're probably looking and seeing a lot in the media about this, is you know being able to potentially be useful for the thera- uh, therapeutic uh, amelioration of cancer. Uh, and various types of cancer, uh, from lung cancer right through to uh, uh, different gliomas and brain cancers and things like that. So this is a different creature altogether. So what we're actually talking about here is the uh, pure oil that you are extracting out of the plant. You are basically extracting the pure resins out of the plant, and you use use basically uh, different solvents to do that. Right. So, you know, there are a lot of people that are using, particularly over in the United States at the moment, they're using things like isopropyl alcohol, hexane, uh, 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 you know, all sorts of, uh, I think, rather nasty uh, types of uh, solvents, which can be quite damaging uh, if there's residue left in yeah, the finished right. product. Mm. Uh, and I prefer, I think, ethanol or, or um, critical CO2 extraction, I think, are the two best because they're the two cleanest. But the problem is, is that it's very dangerous. You know, you're, you're literally uh, ext- putting 
up to uh, you know uh, large amounts of cannabis into uh, a solvent like ethanol, and then you're allowing it to extract for between three to five minutes and stirring it and agitating it, and then you're literally straining it and then uh, evaporating it off. And I mean, I don't know if uh, many people have actually seen pure ethanol burn. It burns blue. It's very, very hot. Uh, and you have any type of uh, even electric device or open element or flame while that's evaporating because it should be evaporating off at about 78 degrees, right. uh, it, it could explode yeah. and cause burns. So yeah. it's a very, very dangerous thing and uh, needs to be done, I think, by people that, that actually know what they're doing. And so I, I completely agree going back to that question where it shouldn't, uh, you know, regulation uh, and uh, is not just about whether or not uh, the plants are grown to high quality control and things like that. That's of course a given. That's very important. Mm. But the thing is, then, is that if they, if companies start manufacturing different types of oils uh, for administration, particularly the uh, you know THC rich uh, cannabis oils, uh, which are just pure resin, basically, um, then they need to be not only uh, made to such a standard that uh, there's quality control and you can be able to measure you know, is the THC to CBD ratio two to one or four to one uh, so that you can get guaranteed therapeutic efficacy for the patient. But you also want to make sure that the residues of the solvents is is within a safe limit. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's another important point. So I think that uh, uh, the government needs to uh, regulate for that as well. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not stopping people, of course, that people are uh, making these things in their backyard and, and uh, all that kind of stuff. And uh, again, quality control, maybe not so much the issue, but I guess at the end of the day, the simple fact is, is that it's, it's been illegal uh, and they, uh, they're they doing what they feel is right to, to try and uh, help uh, and assist people. But uh, the government certainly does need to consider that, I think, moving forward. Mm. You know, we haven't really spoken about a, a, a whole system in the body um, yeah. called the endocannabinoid system or the endocannabinoid system. Yeah. Can you go through that briefly for our li- our listeners? Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's uh, it's a uh, look. It's a really interesting uh, subject for me, uh, simply because I think the the thing that struck me when I first started doing research into cannabis all those years ago is that how come I never learned about this in school? Mm. Um, so here I was, you know, doing my my four year bachelor degrees and and uh, different diplomas and. Then I went on and did masters, and it was only in my masters program that I started to learn about it. And so, you know, I started talking to a couple of friends uh, that are uh, medical doctors, and I said, "So, what do you know about the endocannabinoid system?" And they just kind of smiled and looked <laughs> at me. Um, and yeah, exactly. And so I'm sitting there going, "How can this very, very important uh, regulatory system of homeostasis actually skip out in in um, you know being taught in medical schools and and being taught indeed to?" Uh, most healthcare providers, because it's such an important regulatory system. So, yeah, it's a really interesting thing. So, um, when we look about or the, the endocannabinoid system, you know, the, the ECS system, as they uh, sometimes refer to it, you know, it is absolutely amazing. But unfortunately, it's it's not really well understood. Um, but the one thing that I just want to mention to the listeners uh, to make it, I guess, a little bit easier to digest is that this is one of the major regulatory systems for homeostasis within the body. Okay, right. When it comes to homeostasis, the, the ECS is, is definitely up there uh, with uh, taking care of this for us. So mm-hmm. we've only been studying the endocannabinoid system for about the last 20 to 25 years, I think it is. Um, and it was actually thanks to the cannabis plant uh, that we learn about it at all. So some, some scientists actually believe um, 
It's about 500 mil million years old from an adaptation point of view or an evolutionary bio biological point of view. Uh -huh. um, so it's uh, it's something that uh, obviously we've had uh, uh, within us uh, and many mammals may uh, for quite some time. So, you know, the topic of the endocannabinoid system is is pretty huge. Um, and we could probably actually just do an entire talk uh, or even an article about just this subject alone. But I'll give you, you know, kind of like a, a bit of a snapshot uh, of it. So um, I guess first and foremost, as I said, the, the, the ECS, the endocannabinoid system, uh, is first and foremost uh, all about controlling homeostatic mechanisms within the body. Yep. Full stop. That's, yep. that's largely what it's important for. So it basically functions to always try and return the body to homeostasis. Um, by attenuating the potential for either excitatory uh, or inhibitory neuronal activity. So now here is another really interesting aspect about the, the endocannabinoid system is whilst the classic neuronal pathway uh, sees neurotransmission from the presynaptic neuron through neurotransmitter release across the cleft on receptors expressed on the postsynaptic neuron, what we can see in the endocannabinoid system is that they can work as retrograde modulators. So they actually go against uh, or work against the classic neuronal pathway to exert modulatory influences on neurotransmitters. So that is that they're released from postsynaptic neurons and actually can act on you know, cannabinoid CB1 receptors in the presynaptic axon terminals. Yeah. So it basically makes them local mediators with paracrine and, and sometimes autocrine function um, and starts to show the extent of magnitude that this system could potentially influence. I mean, everything from central nervous system and peripheral nervous system functions, but all the way through to immune function by inhibiting cytokine release or energy regulation, hmm. cellular fate, you know, uh, with cancers, GIT function, reproduction. I mean, the, the list uh, just goes on and on. So breaking it down uh, uh, in, in, a, wow. in a simplistic way, we can basically look at the major components of the ECS as being one of three things. So first and foremost, we've got the cannabinoid receptors, and this is where molecules uh, like the phytocannabinoids, uh, THC, and other cannabinoids are going to bind. So basically, we classify these as being either of two types of receptors. I think that as more research gets done, we may actually find that there are more down the track but we classify these as a CB1 or CB2 receptors. I'll talk more on that in a minute. Yeah. So uh, recent uh, research also suggests that endocannabinoids, so endo means within. So obviously, you know, we've got, we, we, we produce uh, our own cannabinoids to be able to have receptors for them. So the uh, anandamide in particular is, is one of these endocannabinoids. So it uh, uh, directly interacts with uh, non-CB1 and non-CB2 receptors. So, um, it's not just about uh, cannabinoids. It can actually, they've just done a study that showed that it actually uh, works on things like the transient uh, receptor potential vanilloid type. So that's the TRPV1 channel. In so much as saying that it's not just about working on uh, their own receptor types, it can actually work right. on different receptors as gotcha. well. So gotcha, gotcha. this is where we've got that huge scope for uh, particular therapy. So we've got the, the cannabinoid receptors, we've got the cannabinoids themselves, okay? So in the uh, endocannabinoid system, mm. those that are endogenously produced, uh, we've got anandamide uh, and uh, 2-AG, uh, which are the uh, products that we produce in our own body. We've got phytocannabinoids, which come from plants and also, of course, interact with the same uh, cannabinoids. Mm. And then we've got those that are synthetically produced, uh, like Marinol. 
So Marinol is basically a synthetically derived uh, Delta 9 THC. Right. So we've got the cannabinoid receptors, we've got the cannabinoids themselves in their three different forms, and then we've got the enzymes that basically take part in their manufacture and breakdown of the endocannabinoids. So things like uh, fatty acid amide hydrolase, uh, all three of these uh, basically work in harmony to achieve homeostasis and bring balance to the body. So you've got those uh, the, the receptor, the cannabinoids, and the enzymes. So the endocannabinoids um, are thus called, of course, because of its development to respond, well, uh, it, it's endogenously produced cannabinoids. And uh, in the human body, the first two that were found uh, to do this was your uh, anarachidonoyl ethanolamine, uh, which is basically shortened to anandamide. So anandamide uh, is derived uh, from the Sanskrit word for, for bliss. And, and uh, many people that have had it would probably uh, uh, agree with that. Yeah. Um, and then you've also got your uh, 2-arachidonoyl glycerol, which is your 2-AG. Uh, and these were both found uh, uh, to, to interact with our own cannabinoid receptors, particularly these CB1 and CB2 receptors. So now I said I'll get back to the receptors. So we've got our CB1 and CB2 receptors. Um, and the interesting thing about these receptors, at least to those of you from an anatomy and physiology uh, point of view, is that they belong to a class of what we call G-coupled receptors. And they were actually first identified around about, I think it was 1990. Um, and they're obviously really important for uh, neural pathway regulation. So uh, I, I actually read uh, a study that su suggests that these G-coupled receptors are expressed at higher prevalence than all of the dopamine, noradrenaline, and serotonin receptors combined, uh, even being, I think, 10 times more prevalent than opioid receptors. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm digressing again. But it just goes to show you, you know, uh, how diffuse Huge. the endocannabinoid system is. It's absolutely massive. So anyway, um, the two facon, uh, getting back to it. So uh, CB1 receptors are the classic psychoactive receptor. Um, so these are the main targets for things like your delta-9 THC, your tetrahydrocannabinol. And it assists in things like regulating pain, regulating seizure threshold, nausea control, also exerts a, a fairly significant regulatory control by uh, regulating the levels of neurotransmitters in the brain. Uh, so, you know, obviously a lot of central nervous uh, things going on here. And then you've got your CB2 receptors. So they're also involved in things like pain modulation and inflammation, but they're distributed throughout the body a little bit different. So where your CB1 receptors are mostly found in, in the central nervous system, particularly in regions of different concentrations, you know, from the basal ganglia, frontal cortex, cerebellum, uh, amygdala, hypothalamus, uh, your cortex, and the hippocampus. So hippocampus, obviously, where we do a lot of learning and things like that. So this may be sometimes why some people suffer from short-term memory uh, if they're uh, using it maybe a bit too much. But Interestingly, uh, for all of those uh, areas that I talked about, there's almost zero, <clears throat> excuse me, distribution uh, in the brainstem. Uh, you know, so in the um, midbrain and the pons or the medulla oblongata, <clears throat> uh, which is why it's you know incredibly unlikely, or uh, you know, the amount that you would need to overdose uh, from the cannabis plant is, uh, yeah, I just don't think it, it's going to be possible because there's none of that brainstem uh, activity there. Whereas CB2 receptors, these are more uh, peripheral nervous system, uh, GIT, uh, diffuse through immune tissues, uh, cells such as your uh, thymus and spleen, mm. uh, 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 basically uh, exhibiting this kind of immune system modulatory activity. So small amounts, 
are also found in, in the neuroglia, uh, but nowhere near amount uh, uh, the same amount as the, the CB1 expression that we see. So is does CBD act more on the endocannabinoid 2 receptors? Well, it's, there's still being a lot of studies uh, based on this, so they're actually finding that it can work on other receptors as well. Mm. So it's a, it just opens up, as I said, I think... Um, if it, if it does anything that uh, that shows the listener just how epic uh, this system is uh, wow. for regulating homeostasis, it, it's uh, it's just one of those things where it's tip of the iceberg. I mean, we've, we've done 15,000 studies on this plant and we're still just getting to know it. Like if we were if we were taking cannabis on a date, we just asked it what it did for a job. Uh, that's actually <laughs> how I think we are when it comes to this plant because we we just, you know, even after all those studies where, where the, the level of complexity uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it, the, the magnitude uh, that this is, you know, a plant that could, uh, can just be, you know, we talk about it kind of undergoing this renaissance. It's, mm. it's always been there for us, you know, throughout history. Uh, and it's coming back now with a vengeance because we've got science to assist us uh, in developing our relationship with it. So, yeah, uh, in, in regards to your question, it's, uh, it's growing. Uh, the, the, the research for CBD particularly is that it can interact with all sorts of different ones. But it's, it's you know, particularly with CB2 receptors, um, that's, they're the ones that are, we're really interested in when it comes to immune uh, or modulating activities. So things like immune suppression, uh, induction of apoptosis. Now, this is where it starts to become quite uh, interesting for answer. So induction of apoptosis, induction of cell migration, influencing regulation of inflammatory pathways. And I mean, this this is, uh, you know, for many of you nuts and herbalists out there, you would understand that um, alkylamides from echinacea have been found to modulate yes. tumor necrosis factor, uh, mRNA expression in human monocytes and macrophages via the CB2 receptor. And indeed so act on the endocannabinoid system, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's not just about cannabis here that interacts with the, with the, with the ECS, it's what we'll probably find is that uh, a lot more plants do, and we're just uh, we're, we're getting to understand that. Mm. And so, I, I think I guess finishing up with the with the discussion of the on the endocannabinoid system is that basically any change then in receptor density or expression um, through things like individual polymorphism, enzyme concentrations that could increase or decrease the breakdown or increase or decrease in endocannabinoid synthesis can throw this entire endocannabinoid system out of balance. Yeah. And so this is why it's incredibly complex and we need to research more on it. So remember when we were talking last time, Andrew, we were saying how you get those people that they've tried cannabis and they're just like, oh my God, that was awful. It's not for yep. me. Yep. Um, and so this is kind of where we get back to that individual polymorphism. It's not just plants uh, and, and other creatures that can exhibit polymorphism. We do too. And so where we start to get people that have, uh, you know, they may be using really low doses uh, of cannabis, they might actually be uh, have higher uh, receptor activity and receptor expression so that the, the body can make use. That They basically manufacture more receptors to be able to make use of the smaller amount that you get, whereas someone that's smoking consistently uh, will probably see a down-regulation of yeah. those receptors, and that's actually what develops tolerance. Yeah, so yeah. It, it's really, really interesting that uh, from a, from, you know, going back to that receptor, uh, and then you've got the actual endogenously produced endocannabinoids or the uh, phytocannabinoids and then the enzymes that break them down. These are the three major interfaces that we can use to basically balance and modulate the endocannabinoid system. It's, it's you know, you're basically looking at 
how we can achieve homeostasis through these three different variables and factors. What about the use of cannabis fibre? Is that an oral, like a food source? Oh, look, that's that's become really popular lately, hasn't it? I mean, that's... Uh, uh, and we're seeing a bit of contention there too. They're even banning the cannabis uh, proteins, or was it the hemp proteins and things like that? Right. But yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, studies um, are showing that it's quite a low allergy plant. So this is, you know, obviously got a lot of different applications um, apart from medicine. So um, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard not to get excited about it. I mean, it's we 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 largely probably grew this. Uh, in the Neolithic period uh, for its fiber, you know, to make uh, uh, textiles and, and rope and, and all those types of things. So, um, you know, when it comes to the, the low allergy fiber, they use it for, for clothing. Uh, and this goes back, you know, as a textile and fiber for about 10,000 years. Um, use it as food and beverage, uh, you know, so things like um, I think a third of hemp seeds weight comes from oil. Um, so it's actually, you know, really, really uh, densely nutritious. Um, and with the whole seed, I think, actually contains approximately 25% protein. Um, I read a study actually just yesterday showing that uh, hemp seed actually has more omega-3 than walnuts, uh, which is pretty impressive. So wow. you can definitely use it, you know, to uh, as, a, as a supplement and things like that. Um, uh, there are companies over in the States that are brewing beer and iced teas from it, uh, uh, if you if you're kind of keen on the taste, but um, you know from a farming perspective, the stalks and other residual parts that that aren't used can actually be used as feed for animals and you know goats and things like that. So and clothing. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got the the hemp uh, uh, is, can also be uh, made into a biofuel, mm. you know, so um, biodiesel because it does you know uh, produce large amounts of oil. So that's a sustainable, um, uh, reliable fuel fuel source that uh, can can take our reliance on you know, the highly polluting fossil fuels away. Um, we can use it as a much better source for paper as well. And that's a big thing for me because I think it's really interesting how mm. being a naturopath and a herbalist, you kind of, you know, uh, indirectly also kind of have to be a conservationist because what we use as medicines comes from nature. So mm. Mm. I think that when we look at that, you know, um, they've been growing hemp for paper for at least 2,000 years that we know of. Uh, and it makes much more sense to me, I think, uh, to, to look at using hemp as a uh, a growing crop for paper rather than forests, which have taken hundreds, if not thousands, of years to grow, yeah. um, and and support a really diverse and delicate ecosystem where you can just have a monocrop like hemp that will you know reach maturity within a when it within a year cycle uh, and get just as much uh, output. So I think that's fantastic. And then even building, which which has only been something that I've recently learned about, it's been around for a while, but hempcrete. Is, is just blowing my mind at the moment. Wow. So they basically uh, make this, it's like a concrete, and it's an excellent fire retardant, really strong building material, easily manufactured, excellent uh, uh, insulation qualities. Um, and this was, um, you know, they've even been using hemp to make plastics uh, uh, quite strong. Back in the day, I think it was back in the 1940s, mm. uh, the Ford Motor Company apparently produced a car made out of hemp and soy plastic. And, and uh, there was a picture of one of the, I don't know if it was Ford himself, one of the employees kind of taking to this uh, structure of the car with a with an axe handle and uh, it was it was taken a bit of punishment. So Gosh. it's not just about the medicine, you know, there's so much else uh, that's just so exciting. I mean, we're, we're going to see a burgeoning uh, industry and, and, and already are in other countries. I mean, Australia has just been so slow on the uptake yeah. uh, when it comes to the medicinal virtues, but everything else. I mean, in a country that, here's one thing that just blows me away. In a country where we're so worried about bushfire and we build out of wood, 
You know, uh, it just it, yeah. it baffles me why why we continue. Your, your house burns down, you build the house again in the same area, and you build it out of wood. So, you know, sure, you can use steel and things like that, but you could use, uh, you know, concrete or hempcrete and things like that. And in a, in a country that's so hot and, and uh, has such adverse uh, weather conditions, you want really good insulated yeah. Uh, you know, uh, houses and, and hempcrete could be an answer for that. Uh, suffice to say also, you know, termites, uh, to try and reduce termite uh, control, uh, concrete and things like that, uh, I think make much more sense. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, not just in, in medicine. It, it branches so many different industries. And, uh, yeah, it's just, I, 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 it never ceases to amaze me. <laughs> well, I've got to say, you know, like you've, and forgive the pun, but you really have blown my mind with, not just the complex phytochemistry, which I was half prepared for, but the the multitude of uses. I had no idea about these other mm. uses. So I, I knew about clothing, but biofuel and certainly hempcrete is like that's yeah. a sustainable actual thing. And I think I think the the key is as long as we can get the regulators to properly responsibly regulate this, so that we can use the. Um, pharmacologically active components for medicinal purposes and then we can use the rest of the plant for other ecological purposes and and economic purposes i think that makes perfect sense yeah you're absolutely correct and i think um you know very succinctly wrap that up is that the the, the regulators legislators and politicians need to see that it's not just about the medicine that there are a lot of other industries that could benefit from this and at the bottom line you know that benefits our economy it creates more jobs um there's going you know if, if it's done properly uh, this could be a very, very important industry uh, for Australia uh, internationally and, and uh, you know, locally in our in a little Asia-Pacific region. Justin, I can't thank you enough for taking our listeners through the complex, wow, underscore, na- nature of cannabis species and the various cultivars, their medicinal use and their, indeed, economic use. Thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine. It's been my absolute pleasure. And once again, thank you so much for the opportunity, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. And I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.